This is Live from the Convent, Podcast 35. Bobbert Bedford is a hard worker, never one to slack. And I'd say, to this day, he's one of the best. But that film, from 1962, Connie's Warehouse, blew the bloody doors off the industry. Robert Bedford was taking a huge risk with this film. There was no doubt about that. But his career up to this point had been quite predictable and safe. I was going out with Bobert Bedford at the time. I was with him when he read the script and initially he thought it wouldn't be a good idea to do. And then we took some ayahuasca and the next morning he was off. I never saw him again. Being the director of Connie's Warehouse was a big thrill for me. I never thought Bobby would say yes, but he did. It's not every day you get Bob at Bedford agreeing to, to play your protagonist. He would do this thing before every single take, which was time-consuming, but, you know, when you're working with the likes of, of Bobby, you've got all out. He would have to go down in his hunkers and hop across the length of the set and he would have these two rose stems behind his ears and they had to be yellow roses. Sorry, the runner on, on set would source yellow roses every morning and sometimes it, it would have to be hundreds of yellow roses because there would be hundreds of, of takes. We had to be careful how we wired the set because in his hopping, you know, there was always a risk that he might have tripped on the wires because I never stopped him from doing what he needed to do to prepare for each take I feel it added to the quality of, of what we were able to capture there were some other things that he needed to do as well as the hopping he would have to say his warm-up phrase 200 times. This was after makeup when we were all ready to go, but we allowed it. He would have to say onion bunion 
200 times. It wasn't before each take, like the hopping, but it really freed up his his speech and his his face for for movement. I would have to say onion bunion 200 times into the face of a cat. So it was quite difficult getting the cat to stay still, but it was a necessary part of of what he needed to do. It was it was his process, so we had to, to go with that. We would usually dangle a fish behind Bobbit's head and that would usually keep the cat wrapped for as long as it needed to be. You know, Bobbit just showed up on set the first day. He had arrived by ferry the night before and just hung out and walked. He could have got a cab or whatever. And we were all ready to go. We had a different lead actor. And so Bobbit shows up and he punches the lead actor. And he simply just said, on your bike, basically. And strangely enough, the lead actor, he'd really fought to get this royal and, and knew that we had a preference for Bobbit. He left. I guess he was intimidated or, or maybe fan. And so we just started getting him ready. We couldn't believe the luck of it. We'd worry about the contract with the actor we cast later, I guess. The most important thing was that money was, was burning and we needed to get started. The original title of the movie was Below the Belt. But they didn't want audiences to be confused about the content. This was a political smokehouse of a dinner party topic. Howard Blowstein once said between hors d'oeuvres and starters, who was the film for anyway? And who was the film for? It was so political. It was apolitical. Connie's warehouse was one long, drawn-out fuck you to the world. Without saying a thing, it said everything. Bobbert, at the time, had this short, severe haircut. He would sharpen this bamboo stick in between takes. He was going through some changes. I'm not saying it was a midlife crisis. 
more a rearrangement of his priority list. No, Putin knew. He was coming down off ayahuasca. Took weeks to wear off. I kept seeing this purple bear on top of the director's shoulders. One of the producers, the executive producer, I believe, told the director they would have to pony up and strap a saddle to his shoulder for the best boy to sit on. This is so that when the ayahuasca wore off, Bobbitt would not get a shock that the purple bear was gone. Now, in case it's not clear, there was no bear. Luckily, the best boy of the bill set was small and slight, like a jockey. And we got him a bear suit and dyed in purple. It kept everything ticking along nicely. Imagine that Gonzo's warehouse wasn't about someone called Gonzo or warehouse. The plot had you interested from the start. Even the intro sound. It was so political. I don't mean Democrats or the Conservatives or the Liberals or the Left or Right. I mean it awoke a strong reaction in everyone I knew. For example, everyone after the first weeks showing at the movie theaters, they threw their toasters out just because of that one scene with toaster. Just because of that one scene. But it's a scene that's never left my mind. And how did they get the bread to do that? Bobby and the whole crew made a pact to never let the truth out. This is what he told me over the phone when he called me from the set one day. People would act out scenes from Gone Warehouse in the bedroom because of, of the subject matter it brought up. It was all about power, sex. It was about people. People were marching in droves down city sewers because the sewer was a big part of of that chase sequence. They were all looking for Francesca Monta because uh, they had been told at the beginning of the film that uh, Francesca Monta was a real person. I believed she was a real person. Actually, I thought uh, 
Bobert was maybe having an affair with Francesco. Who knew if it was true? People had to find out for themselves. There was a bridge depicted, no one could figure out exactly where it was based. But that bridge, it was the shelter over Bobby's character, as well as Francesca Monta. And on the underside, words from the Bible spray painted on it. Sorry, Francesca Monta was Bobbitt's character's love interest, but she gets taken, right? And Bobbitt ends up in her spot under the bridge, basically, so he's keeping it warm for her while he's trying to figure out where she is. And then he gets taken, which totally blows the audience's mind. And I had to be really careful about how I wanted to portray that because I really wanted it to seem out of the blue and realistic. And I really needed for it to work because the success of the film would hinge on that moment. I've never seen so much prodding and probing in a warehouse. Not that it was really a warehouse, but these essentially were government workers dressed up as as aliens in really bad costumes as well because the government had invested in this really expensive building and really modern technology and then skimped on these alien outfits like they'd wanted the people who had been abducted to see through the whole operation it was like this this in joke (laughs) and I wanted it to be ambiguous and mysterious and confusing So these characters lying there, strapped in, and and they can witness the whole charade of, of the missing people getting experimented on. No wonder they don't have to test on animals anymore. This is what is, is going on in, in Bobbitt's head and it, it all starts to, to make sense. They've got plenty of forsaken and forgotten unclaimed people to go around, right? So he's figuring all of this out at the time. And then it's around this point when Bobbitt's character is, is putting all of the pieces together that Bobbitt starts to put on this Greenlandic accent. Now, nobody on, on set had ever heard a Greenlandic accent. I mean, there's there's lots of different dialects. As far as I know, there's, there's three different dialects at least in, in Greenland. And somehow on, on Bobbitt's year off previously he had made it his business to learn this this accent and he'd always wanted to try it out and we were just wondering 
you know, myself and the crew and, and the producers, why he would choose to do this halfway through through filming when already he'd had his own accent at the beginning right until the halfway mark and then, you know, he decides to put on the Screenlandic accent. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a surprise. I was playing one of those government workers. One of the only acting jobs I ever got. Never mind. The silver plastic spikes pointing inwards prevent me from unloading my balls today. Long-term damage. In 1962, they did not pay attention to costumes and the long-term damage. The wrong kind of costume could do. And I am a living testament to this. He insisted on putting on this Greenlandic accent. With the Greenlandic accent, the purple bear, the bamboo stick, the ayahuasca, everyone was on edge. It was the edgiest set you ever did see. It made for a Dynamite film. At least two film critics had to take a holiday to recover from viewing it. Very well-known film critics. And these holidays were actually retreats with the monks. That is how profound an effect this film had on people. Nobody had ever heard this Greenlandic accent before coming from an American's mouth. The director just let him. For the entire production, his left eye was looking at his nose and his right eye was looking up at the lighting rig. People thought it added to the intensity of his performance. They didn't realise when it came out that he was high off his face on ayahuasca. After doing a film like Connie's Warehouse, you really didn't need to do another. It was all the experience that you would need. It was a pressure cooker. One that I will never forget.
the man who sold us the ayahuasca, he never told us how long it would be in our system for. This was superior ayahuasca. <laughs> I've never come across anything like this. Uh, I had a driving test the following day. Uh, the day that the barber the bed for the left me for good. Uh, I had the driving test. Uh, and I showed up. Uh, I've always been a nervous driver. Very nervous. So. And uh, I passed with flying colors, as they say. Uh, hmm. End of podcast. <laughs>